0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And today, we are going to actually be doing a talk based on Xander's most recent talk at the Intelligent Speech Conference, which was just last weekend in New York. It is the Monday afterward. We are tired, but we had a great time. We got to hang out with Mike Duncan, which was super cool. And I got to finally meet David Crowther. And it was just generally warm and fuzzy and really well-received. And people learned a ton of stuff, including me. It was brilliant. So those of you who couldn't make it very sad, those of you in Europe who are thinking, well, how can I get to go? Turns out we're working on doing it in London as well in I think November. So, you know, Fearless Leader Royfield is still at it. So stay tuned, European listeners. We will be in London probably. Or at least Xander and I probably, but Agora definitely. But in particular for this talk, I encourage Xander to make a podcast out of it because it because it went so well. And we had some great questions that people really engage. And I said, look, Xander, we got to get this out to, to everyone. So Xander acquiesced. This is all Xander's content, so he's going to be doing most of the talking. I'm going to be the interlocutor. I'm going to ask questions that folks in the audience asked um, and, uh, you know, questions that I had as well that helped set it up. Uh, So you'll be hearing a lot from Xander, and I'm going to turn it over to him. So Xander, what are we talking about today?
2: Indeed, today we are talking about Russia, but more specifically, we're talking about the the Trump administration's foreign policy towards Russia. And the way this has been covered a lot over the last three years has been something along the lines of focusing on Russia's intervention in the 2016 elections. And as the Mueller investigation unfolded, a narrative emerged, which, you know, has been repeated and echoed across a number of different sources and goes something like this: which is, you know, Russia intervened in 2016, helped get Trump elected, and now. Because of that intervention, Trump is actually beholden to Russia and prone to compromise U.S. foreign policy towards Russia by going too soft. I mean, and I'll just I'll just come out and be a little blunter about it.
1: Right. Like Trump is a puppet of Putin. Right. Putin has, I guess, something on Trump or they had a deal to have a Russian Manchurian candidate or maybe we'll call it a Siberian candidate candidate. In the White House, and now Trump is definitely doing all these things to help Russia. And that obviously would be, if true, would be the worst, because if true, would probably be the worst. And so we actually got questions from listeners that basically went like this Hey guys, how is Trump helping Russia? Like, tell us a little more about all these ways that Trump is definitely helping Russia since he's so compromised. And th- those questions were what got us thinking about doing a talk on this.
2: Right. And for the sake of brevity, let's just refer to this entire narrative as like the trump Mueller russia narrative or the corruption narrative or something like that. And it's been repeated enough where people are probably pretty familiar with it. I have a slide deck that will be available at Reconsider.com slash podcast with a lot of additional graphics that will help if you want to follow through this when you're not driving. But it's a beautiful slide deck. Much appreciated. Amazing. Amazing. It's the yep. best of all slide decks. You'll love it. I guarantee it. But just, you know, to give you a taste, or you're probably familiar with how this goes roughly, but here are some quotes from a number of pretty well-known big news outlets that have covered this trump Mueller russia corruption narrative. You know, one is from The Guardian, and, and this is from a, um, a piece about the investigation, which said, if Trump has nothing to hide, why is he so soft on Russia? Another from uh, Salon said many fear Trump will hand Putin unwarranted concessions like unraveling U.S. sanctions against Russia. Trump was always soft on them anyways. What could be motivating Trump's largesse towards Russia? It's hard to argue that is what's best for America. And uh, one from New York magazine, which is particularly provocative, says, will Trump be with his counterpart or his handler referring to Putin at this meeting? So a lot of very clear messaging that Trump is a Russian puppet. And what struck me is that enough time has now passed to actually review this claim. It's kind of been going on ever since the investigation started. And the investigation has dragged on longer than a lot of people thought. But we can ask, well, is Trump's policy on Russia actually soft now? And we can review what's happened. And I'll come back to this point sort of throughout the, the talk here, throughout the episode, And suggest that instead of asking, you know, if person X is too soft or hard, maybe instead we should be thinking about what it means to be too soft and too hard. What are those details? So I think there's five big uh, U.S.-Russia for policy topics. There's clearly more, but these are kind of like the big ones. And you have sanctions, Syria, Nord Stream 2. And if you're not familiar with that is, I'll come back and explain in more detail. NATO and Ukraine. and yeah. Go ahead. And I th- and I
1: think with each of these, the reason Xander decided to pick these five topics is that they're the big things related to, you know, like how the US like if any if a given president were in charge, that was not Trump. What would a reasonable either somewhere between what you might think of as soft or might think of as hard? What would a reasonable, totally not compromised president do or what would be some reasonable options that they could pick from with respect to these and then, what would someone do if they were compromised? Uh, if they were, you know, if Putin was their handler, what would they do if they were trying to help Russia? And we can use actual, you know, reality as a test of whether Trump is acting in a way consistent with someone who is taking orders from Moscow versus someone who is following some version of U.S.
2: grand strategy vis-a-vis Russia. Right. So in the realm of sanctions, which is probably one that people are a little bit more familiar with, there's a lot going on. And so much, in fact, that we can't possibly get to all of them, explain all of the sanctions that have been levied in the last couple of years in detail. So maybe what I'll do in the pure audio format is just walk through the timeline of some of the bigger sanctions that have happened in the last couple of years. So starting in June 2017, U.S. imposed sanctions on 38 individuals and entities, including Wagner, which is a Russian defense contractor that kind of pops up in places like Central african Republic and Sudan, Syria as well. Sort of places that Russia wants to intervene but wants some degree of deniability. In August 2017, Congress actually passed sanctions. I'll come back to that in a minute. And this was called Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act or CATSA. So put a pin in that one for a second. But there were a lot of additional sanctions that were levied after Katza by the administration under authorities that weren't Katza. So in January 2018, the U.S. sanctioned 21 individuals, nine Russian companies. In March 2018, the U.S. uh, extended existing sanctions by a a year. Uh, The U.S. also expelled 60 Russian diplomats. So this is not really sanctions, but kind of in the realm of diplomacy in response to uh, Russia poisoning Sergei Skripal, who is this former GRU officer, got poisoned in Britain. Then in in April 2018, the U.S. designated 38 Russian businessmen for visa bans and froze their assets. This was related to both Ukraine and Syria stuff. In August 2018, the U.S. imposed a ban on arms sales, arms sales financing, and other financial um, assistance to Russia that might be related to arms exports. In September 2018, the U.S. Commerce Department imposed sanctions on 12 more Russian companies. This was supposedly in response to Russia providing material support to Iran's missile program. In November 2018, the U.S. Treasury introduced new sanctions on three individuals and organizations in response to the Kerch Strait crisis that happened in in November 2018, where there was sort of a, a kerfuffle between the Ukrainian Navy and the Russian Navy. In March 2019, U.S., Canada, and the EU all imposed even more sanctions on Russia in response to this Kurtz Strait incidents. So all of those were sanctions levied by the administration, not under CATSA authority. So let me come back to Katza real quick, because what Katza was, was an initiative by Congress supposedly to tie Trump's hands. This is kind of the narrative that went on at the time. Trump had just met with Putin on the sidelines of the G20. Everyone covered what they said was really soft rhetoric coming from Trump about Putin and everything. You know, the, everyone in the U.S. was afraid that Trump was basically just about to, you know, not be tough on Putin. So Congress said, no, 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 we can't do that. Yeah, Putin's a great. Putin's a great guy. Totally reasonable. Yeah, exactly. And Congress said, can't have that. So we need to make sure that Trump is sufficiently hard on Putin. So what Katza does is imposes sanctions and requires that the president seek congressional authority if the president wants to get waivers from those sanctions for any individual company. Now, there's still something, there's still a role that the executive has in Katza, which is delegating who gets targeted. Congress decides what the penalties are, and the president decides who those sanctions are levied against. So, Trump was still involved in delegating who was hit with those sanctions. And a lot of those, a lot of people that were targeted under, under Katz authority were people in Putin's inner circle. And the first time that they were used in March 2018 they they were still severe enough to send the ruble down 10%. So you can make the argument one way or another that maybe Trump did or didn't want CATSA. That that one's maybe a little ambiguous, but still there were sanctions levied by the administration before CATSA was passed. The administration delegated targets under CATSA authority that substantially hurt the Russian ruble and then also levied a number of other sanctions not under CATSA authority afterwards.
1: And the thought I always had around CATSA What's so interesting about it is it was targeted. Those those sanctions were targeted specifically at Russia. The sanctions related that Katz was related to were about sanctions that were billed specifically as, hey, Russia, you totally super interfered in our election. That's bad. We're going to punish you for that. Don't do that again. Here's your punishment. And it puts it those sanctions in particular put trump in a bit of an awkward position because if he goes yeah bad russia you totally interfered in the election and possibly got me elected when i otherwise totally wouldn't and shouldn't have gotten elected bad russia take these sanctions as you can imagine these particular sanctions he might feel a little bit differently about given the fact that he is you know been his his rhetoric has been somewhat defensive about the legitimacy of his election when it has been called into question due to the interference by Russia in the U.S. election. And so I, I've been I've been accused of being a bit of a Trump apologist for this one. But I kind of hold my own that his ambiguity on or his his kind of silence on this particular set of sanctions and he was he was silent on them as opposed to outspoken against them possibly because being outspoken against them wouldn't have done him any favors either but it seems like the kind of sanctions that if you model someone as being defensive about the legitimacy of their election they might act in the way that he did which is to not comment on them and let congress do its thing so I would I would expect him to have acted slightly differently about these even ver- versus all the other sanctions, which his administration seems to voluntarily put forward. So uh, I guess I didn't I didn't ask a question. I answered it. But the question, you know, the, the question from some listeners and audience members was, you know, what about these sanctions about, you know, with respect to it, what about these particular sanctions related to the election itself that he was he seemed soft on. Why was he soft on that? I I think there's a decent reason, actually, or at least if not a pure one, one that is explained by a motivation other than I want to help Putin.
2: Yeah, I, I think this is kind of one negative side effect of having this podcast, Eric, which is, you know, whenever you present a narrative that conflicts with someone's belief, you're immediately labeled as an apologist for some position or another. Like I've also been called a Trump apologist. I've also been called a bleeding heart liberal, like depending on who I'm talking to, it's, it just, it, it happens. Right. Yeah. And I think
1: the, one of the things we had to make clear, even during the talk was that as a society, we have become so tribalized. We're so interested in rooting for our team. Like I, you know, I, I'm in Boston, right? So when the Bruins were in the playoffs, if I said something with respect to, you know, I think the Blues really deserve to win this game. People thought I was a traitor to because it's the Bruins are my team, so no matter what happens, they have to be. The, I have to root for them. They have to be the best. I can't say good things about the other team. That's ridiculous. Right. Like reality, be damned. And so, I think with respect to Trump, if you are not in, in the pro-Trump camp, and and of course we uh, we are officially as a podcast neutral on on everyone's camp but if you are if if you are saying something contrary to the narrative that a politician is bad then you must be in their camp it must be because you support them because otherwise why would you why would you present facts contrary to that narrative and we're just so used to that we're so used to that being true that we have to support our team and oppose the other team and not and 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 say nice things about our guy and criticize the other guy that as soon as you start tending towards either, you know, kind of challenging a particular narrative, people assume that your reasoning must be motivated, right? By motivated by something other than truth finding, it must be motivated by your closet support for or closet opposition to a certain politician or party or tribe. And and so I think this is a good opportunity where, where when you feel that sense of resistance to you know, even this exploration or, you know, on the other hand, if you feel like, yeah, you know, c- come out and, and help Trump, you know, just depending on where you you fall on it. It's a good opportunity for you to recognize that instinct towards tribalism or politics as sports in yourself and, you know, see that said, you know, maybe set it aside for now and just say, OK, you know, maybe these guys are, are looking into this because it's a it's an important question. It's a very important question to assess whether it's true or not, right? And you know, and maybe we don't have, uh, you know, don't have a vested interest in uh, trying to influence your feelings about Trump or whether
2: you support him or not. But we also have different motivators in mind, right? Very brief aside on that, and then I'll, I'll come to the to Syria, which is the next topic. I went and saw stand up act in L.A. a couple of months ago and sat down next to, uh, it was a doctor who, who was there with his family. And we started chatting. And he asked what I did, et cetera, et cetera. I told him about being a political analyst and all that. I said, oh, so are you a Democrat or a Republican? I said, you know, I, I maybe do have a little bit of a bias. If I do, it's it's something you might not be familiar with because it's sort of a different axis. It's like a wonky foreign policy term. I'd say I'm kind of more of a neoclassical realist. And I You know, what that means isn't important for the sake of this conversation, but I tried to give my 30 second summary of it and he kind of pauses for a minute and looks at me and goes, you're a Trump supporter, aren't you? And it was just like, (laughs) and then the show started and that was like the last thing this guy said to me and it it had been like a really pleasant conversation up to that point. So frustrating. Anyways, Syria. Yep. Now he knows everything about you. Yeah, exactly. Right. (sighs) Freaking hell. Syria is another area of US-Russia foreign policy tension, if you want to call it that. And just... For the sake of a quick background, Russia intervened in Syria in 2015, supported Bashar al-Assad. At the time, it really did seem like Assad was about to fall to ISIS and a number of other jihadist rebels. And now Assad has reconquered most of the country except for this small territory in the northwest and the area in the north that is controlled by the Kurds, although that's a little bit different than reconquering. So the U.S. did not get involved directly against Assad up until that point. It had supported this policy sort of early off in 2011-2012 of supporting these quote-unquote moderate rebels, which subsequently turned out not to exist, because that's just not who is in Syria fighting Assad. Now, in April 2017, the U.S. conducted its first of two airstrikes against the Syrian regime. The first was just a unilateral airstrike by the U.S. The second was done in coordination with the U.K. and France. And the first one targeted this airfield. The second one targeted three locations that were either implicated in this chemical weapons attack or believed to be where some chemical weapons were stored. Both were responses to chemical weapons attacks, uh, chemical weapon attacks, excuse me. Now, this is notably different than the policy in the prior administration. Obama sort of famously set out his red line and said, If the Assad regime uses chemical weapons, that's it. That's our red line. We will respond. We will retaliate to show that we won't allow these weapons to be used. And then enough evidence kind of cropped up to show that Assad did, in fact, use chemical weapons. And Obama kind of stepped back from that red line. So the Trump administration's policy towards Russia's proxy or Russia's client, whatever you want to call it in Syria, is one of direct confrontation compared to the prior administration's, which wasn't. So that's one difference between the current administration and the last one. And I, I you know,
1: I, I we we of course had at least one episode about this. It was about you know kind of World War III scaremongering in the media. And of course, during that time, I don't know if anyone remembers. I remember Mike Duncan he, uh, at the at the Intelligence Speech podcast who was saying that people's time horizon for memory for like what is now versus what is ancient history and, and easy to be forgotten is about three months. And I, I don't know if that number is accurate, but it certainly kind of resonated with me. And so I don't know if, I don't know if anyone remembers other than maybe our diehard listeners who remember the podcast episode, but at the time what, what much of the media was saying was that, you know, Trump's reckless foreign policy Risks a direct war with Russia. It risks World War III with Russia, nuclear war with Russia, and there was this period where the, the otherwise consistent narrative of being soft on Russia and doing things that Russia likes and helping Putin was turned totally on its head. That the other that of course you know that it seemed perfectly logical that President Trump was totally happy to have a big fighting war with Russia. And then when it was forgotten, we just went back to, you know, Trump, Trump is working for Russia. And I think it's very important to note that this happened, to note that that our that that a a common, obviously none, none of this is universal, but a a common enough. You know, we've got we've got legitimate newspapers that we're quoting here from before, during, and after that event that flipped their perspectives on this. Um, without without Noting that they flipped their perspectives, right, without kind of tracking this or recognizing it, and that we get caught up in it, yeah. and and then we just conveniently forget that moment that Trump was about to start World War II with Russia, which of course he wasn't. That was the whole point of our podcast. But now we're back to we, like that that data point no longer fits our
2: our narrative that Trump
1: works for Putin. So we've just conveniently ignored it.
2: Yeah, I, I think this is a phrase that I'm using more and more now, and I'm just going to like make it an official reconsider phrase, which is narrative isolation. The idea that one narrative gets picked up and repeated by many, many, many outlets, just kind of repeating the same talking points without actually reaching out and checking either things that were said from that same publication previously, previously about a related but somewhat different topic, or you know just verifying to see if what the narrative suggests is actually supported by reality. Now, in the case of Syria, I think you can make the point, and we did make this point on our prior podcast, that these airstrikes were not an escalation of World War III and probably strategically actually rather insignificant. I, there were reports that there were planes flying off this runway that was bombed like the next day or a couple of days later. So clearly it wasn't unusable. But the point is one administration would not attack Assad, even though at that time Assad wasn't even a Russian client. And then when he did become... Russia, uh, Russia's ally, this administration, did attack it. And the more pressure that is put on Assad, even if it's not strategically meaningful, the more of a commitment in terms of incremental financial resources and military resources Russia will need to supply to the Syrian civil war to keep Assad running. So not strategically important, but still a shift in policy that is arguably harder on Russia because it involves direct military yeah. force, right?
1: And certainly damaging to them, and and the you know I've I've uh, I've been happy to die on this hill a few times, and the for from some people who have some very motivated reasoning that that wanted to make sure that the Trump as a puppet of Putin you know narrative remained firm despite this evidence. Basically, what they said was like, well, maybe Putin and Russia or uh, Putin and Trump coordinated on this to make it look like. Trump was not a puppet of Putin, right, because because, uh, you know, fooling the American public into thinking that he was hard on Putin was was useful. Or perhaps Trump's ego was, you know, his macho ego is wrapped up in it or or, or essentially that the, or that this was like some sort of ruse. And and I think I think suddenly at that point we start getting into, dare I say, conspiracy speculation where, you know, Occam's razor suggests that that's unlikely.
2: Right. All right, that's Syria. Next topic that's worth talking about is Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 is maybe a little less familiar to sort of the the um, maybe the it's just covered less in American media. Look, man, way. I had no yeah. clue what it was. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's, it's less well known. And what what Nord Stream 2 is is a natural gas pipeline that runs from Russia to Germany through the Baltic Sea. It's not operational yet, it's supposed to come online later this year. It is not the first such pipeline that exists. There's another one creatively called Nord Stream 1, that Nord Stream 2 just follows the same route. So the idea is not a new capability, but an increased capacity of an existing capability. Now, in the presentation or the show notes we will include the presentation that has maps of Nord Stream 2 and some of the other, some other maps that'll be helpful to follow this along. So pull that up if it's helpful. But there's, there's a couple of reasons why Nord Stream 2 is important to Russia and Germany. For Germany, it gets most of its natural gas from Russia, Germany imports 95% of all the natural gas it consumes and 55% of that comes from Russia. So most of Germany's natural gas comes from Russia. And in terms of total energy consumption, about 25% of all of Germany's energy use comes from natural gas. So it's not the only energy resource that Germany uses, but it's a pretty important one, and they're heavily dependent upon Russia for it. And that's not unique to Germany. Poland, Slovakia... The Baltics, Finland, a lot of countries in Western and Eastern Europe get most of their natural gas from Russia. Now, Russia likes this because having that sort of leverage over Western Europe gives it some degree of, you know, it gives it a bargaining chip. When it comes to dealing with the U.S. or Europe on sort of any number of issues, because if anyone tries to play hardball with Russia, that's sort of in their back pocket. Always that, oh, you know, well, we you depend on us for your natural gas. The thing is, if you see a map, which we have in this presentation of where some of the other existing pipelines currently run from Russia to Western Europe, they run through Ukraine. And Russia really likes the idea of being able to pressure Ukraine by cutting off its natural gas supply. This is something it's done repeatedly in the past. And this one deprives Ukraine of transport revenues because Ukraine charges Russian companies like Gazprom fees in order to move that natural gas through its borders. And then two, the, of course, just not having access to natural gas. And Russia wants to be able to apply this leverage to Ukraine while continuing to ensure that it can deliver natural gas to Germany. Because if you're Germany sitting there seeing Russia cutting off Ukraine's natural gas supply, you're going, "Eh, "Okay, I have nothing to do with this. And now I'm not getting natural gas for like winter heating. That's a problem. Right. So Russia wants to ensure that Western Europe remains dependent upon it for natural gas while being able to apply pressure to Ukraine, because if If it couldn't do this, Germany might start looking for other sources of natural gas, like the U.S., for example, which is developing more and more infrastructure in the Baltic Sea, in Lithuania and Poland, for importing liquefied natural gas, which the U.S. produces a fair amount of. Liquefied natural gas takes a fair amount of infrastructure in order to both receive and dock and then convert that to a more usable form as opposed to natural gas, which is just in gaseous form. So that that is what Russia is, is basically trying to prevent—a pivot of Western Europe away to different natural gas supplies.
1: Yeah, and we actually talked about this in the fracking revolution episode, where the United States drilling in the you know fracking in uh, the Bakken region and elsewhere was of strategic threat to Russia. So, and and Xander Xander just brilliantly kind of outlined why you know not only economically but but. Uh, geopolitically, Russia's chokehold over the European natural gas supply is so critical for them. And it is not surprising that the United States not only wants to sell, it's now excess natural gas. It used to be a net importer. It is now a net exporter. It not only wants to sell that generally, but but also wants to loosen Russia's chokehold over natural gas. So like this freaking pipeline is and and the natural the liquid natural gas terminals that the US is building are like part of a like very quiet but very very significant geopolitical battle between the United States and Russia over the long term over who has like more long term influence over over Europe
2: like it's 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 a big deal right. and so this is that's the background in terms of the Trump administration's approach towards it this does fall more in the realm of rhetoric. And I do think when discussing these things, it's really important to differentiate rhetoric from action because a lot of the times you'll get a leader just going to one of these G20 conferences and saying a bunch of things, like this is in the news right now. Trump just went to the G20 meeting and just capitulated to everyone about everything and just changed all of America's policy. And the thing is, Trump is often said things before that turn out to not be the policy that the U.S. implements. And this is not just about Trump. It's just about leaders. It is easier to say things than to actually change policy. And sometimes leaders have an incentive to say one thing and do another.
1: You know, or this may fit into the narrative that Trump just runs his mouth sometimes. And then someone says, well, you know, can you actually read the briefing on this, sir? And he'll, you know, and, and then, oh, I read the briefing, you know, who, who you know, may, many, many things may, many may, things may enter into say one thing, do another. But there's a lot of say one thing, do another for sure.
2: Right. Point is, Trump has been vocal about Nord Stream 2. He has said that European com- companies should not participate in building it, that he is considering sanctions, not just against Russian companies, but secondary sanctions, meaning that the U.S. will target non-Russian companies that cooperate with Russian companies in building the pipeline, namely German companies. So the Trump administration is at least publicly making the case for sanctioning allies for cooperating with Russia on this issue. Now, while that does all fall in, in, within the, the realm of rhetoric, there are some developments in terms of sanctions in response to Nord Stream 2 that have happened. In, in mid-May... There are uh, two senators. I forgot to write down who, but one one was Democrat, one was Republican. So it was a bipartisan issue. Said that they're working on a draft bill that would impose secondary sanctions for Nord Stream Two. And then later in May, Secretary of Energy Perry, so now outside of the realm of Congress and within the realm of the administration itself, said that sanctions are for Nord Stream Two are coming very soon. They haven't. I haven't seen what those are yet. I haven't seen if they've been announced yet. Um, and I actually have been following it, so I don't think they're out yet, but. Point is, that is that is one thing that may be coming, and it's something that the administration has talked about. Next. Next is NATO. And any discussion of U.S.-Russia policy has to talk about NATO because it is the collective security organization that was developed after World War II to contain the Soviet Union. Understanding NATO requires understanding this spending target that NATO has. All of NATO's member countries have committed to spending 2% of their GDP on defense, defense spending. And so far, right now, only 7 out of 29 countries actually meet this 2% of GDP spending commitment that NATO has repeatedly made. And those countries are UK, Greece, Poland, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and of course the US. Notably though, Poland and the three Baltics only met that 2% of GDP spending threshold within the last year. So before that, there was only three countries of 29 meeting the target that it itself committed to. So from one perspective, previous U.S. presidents allowed
1: NATO's military capacity to go underfunded for a very long time. And then suddenly, you know, the Trump administration shows up and uh, they're spending more. And there's a correlation with the president, Donald Trump, demanding of Europe that they spend
2: more. Right. Right. And a lot of that has fallen in the realm of rhetoric, too, arguably more aggressively than like with Nord Stream. Trump's been pretty pretty outspoken about how NATO needs to really step up its game, needs to start meeting these commitments it's made in terms of a little bit more data to understand sort of how the burden sharing goes right now. The U.S. accounted for about 51% of NATO's combined GDP in 2017, but 72% of its combined uh, defense expenditures. So in 2017, the U.S. contributed more to NATO, which is arguably mainly about the defense of Western Europe from Russia, than Germany, France, Italy, Spain, the U.K., and Canada all combined. So a lot of people have listened to Trump's rhetoric about NATO not doing enough and interpreted it as carelessness and saying, oh, Trump doesn't know what he's doing. you know, He is exhibiting a willingness to leave NATO, Leto, to leave NATO and abandon our allies. He clearly doesn't have... Leave a, Lado. What? Nive Lado. Leave NATO. Leave Yes, exactly. I can talk sometimes. But despite those narratives that Trump is just kind of you know willy-nilly throwing or risking the alliance structures that have underpinned the international order for the last seven decades, the U.S. has actually been increasing its military commitments to NATO during the Trump administration. And certainly... To, uh, with countries that are actually meeting the spending targets. But surely
1: all he's doing is complaining, right? There hasn't been any real action with respect to increasing U.S. military commitments to NATO or otherwise positioning troops closer to Russia. Right?
0: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection.
2: Actually, no, here, this does fall outside of the war- world of rhetoric in the world of actual actions. So the U.S. has committed to spending more towards investing in developing NATO bases in Romania and Bulgaria. These may be less familiar countries to some, but they're actually fairly stri- strategically significant countries vis-a-vis Russia, because they both sit right on the Black Sea. Especially in Romania, the Constanta military base, which is a NATO military base, sits basically right at the mouth of the Danube that flows into the Black Sea. And the U.S. has uh, dedicated more money to developing base as well as deploying more military equipment there. The U.S. has extended uh, its commitments to countries like Lithuania. Most recently, and arguably most significantly, just a couple of weeks ago after a meeting with President Duda of Poland, Trump announced that the U.S. would be deploying an additional thousand U.S. forces to Poland as part of the NATO mission. And interestingly, these forces are going to supposedly be coming from Germany, which is a country that has been repeatedly failing to meet its spending commitment and deployed to Poland, a country that just within the last year met its spending commitment. So one way you could interpret that is, okay, you've met your commitment. Here's your reward. And it's not just, you know, moving forces from one country or or the next, because if you look at a map, Poland's a lot closer to Russia. is Germany. So Russia's response to this new U.S. deployment to Poland is pretty negative. Russia's not happy about this. It sees it as a forward deployment and a continuation of NATO's policy to gradually encircle Russia, which has been going on since in Russia's eyes, since the end of the Cold War, despite NATO in the West promising Russia that it would not try to encircle it. But that's not all. In addition to more monetary commitments, and more military commitments to NATO partners. The Trump administration has also been increasing the scale of military exercises held with NATO. So in June, the U.S. and NATO conducted um, exercises that were focused on mock assaults on the Baltic coast. So the idea was repelling a theoretical Russian invasion of the Baltics, a pretty, you know, Likely scenario in the grand scheme of where Russia's interests lie and history, right? This year, 8,600 soldiers were involved, which was an increase of 3,600 compared to last year when only 5,000 troops were involved. A number of ships were involved as well, something like 50 ships. And notably, these sets of exercises were conducted and led by the U.S. Navy's Second Fleet. The U.S. Navy's Second Fleet had been decommissioned for a long time but was reactivated in 2018 specifically to oppose Russia's naval presence in the North Atlantic. Then later, uh, actually, sorry, earlier, in October 2018, NATO held its largest military exercise since the end of the Cold War, involving 31 countries, 50,000 soldiers, 250 aircraft, 65 ships, and 10,000 tanks and other vehicles. So more money is being spent— more military commitments from the U.S. are being provided to NATO, and the scale of the exercises between the U.S. and NATO are increasing. And I think one of the important things about this is that
1: the the United States' contribution to these uh, exercises, the United States, deplo- you know, where the United States deploys its troops is entirely and exclusively under the aegis or the prerogative of the executive. Right. So this is something where. Trump and, and the folks he appointed slash plus the the bureaucracy, you know, the military bureaucracy and, and the, def, you know, Department of Defense and state bureaucracy, those folks, not Congress, not anyone else, get to decide all these things. And, you know, so we're, you know, one of the questions that we got was to what extent is the Republican Party, which has been conventionally tough on Russia, to what extent are they – kind of forcing Trump's hand the way they did with uh, Katza. And uh, in this case, my impression is is sort of not at all. There's not much they can do, but I mean, they can have, you know, Mitch McConnell can sit down with the guy and talk to him, but, uh, you know, only has influence, no, no
2: real power. Right. And I'll come back and kind of loop back to this at the end, but you, you can, you could try to read the tea leaves and say, okay, well, Trump was directly responsible for this deployment or the next, and you can make the case in specific examples, so on and so forth. But the point is this this trump Mueller russia corruption narrative posits that the administration is going soft on Russia. And if reality doesn't necessarily support that, and this going soft on Russia narrative implies that the U.S. should be doing more, then you need to kind of ask what more looks like if this isn't sufficient, Right. But I'll, I'll, I'll loop back to that sort of after we walk through the best for last, saving the best for last, which is Ukraine. And it is the best for last in the sense that out of all of the other topics, out of the five to- topics that we're talking about on this episode, Ukraine is probably Russia's greatest concern and, and concern in terms of regions of great geostrategic imports and That's because the area that makes up modern Ukraine and Belarus, which sits just to the north of Ukraine, is right on this historical invasion route into Russia. And again, in the presentation that we'll have in the show notes, you can see a topographical map showing the north and east European plain, which is just a big, flat, open expanse that makes it easy for really, really, really big armies to maneuver through. So you got... Countries like Charles XII, which he didn't go straight through Belarus. He came more through the Baltics because he was coming from Sweden. But still, he was on the East European plane, invaded Russia. One of the larger invasions uh, that Russia had dealt with up to that point, if not the largest. Then clearly there was Napoleon, which I think was the largest invasion in history up to that point. And then, of course, Hitler in World War II, which was the largest invasion in history and saw the most... They saw the deadliest battle in history as well at Stalingrad. So Russia's very concerned about how easy it is for big, big armies to invade it through the path that is Ukraine and Belarus. So in 2014, when it looked to Russia like the U.S. had just fomented this revolution and taken out this pro-Russian guy in order to install a pro-Western government in the Ukraine, Russia kind of freaked out because NATO had already been spent, you know, the last three decades— getting closer and closer and closer to Russia's border. And now it looked like NATO was trying to cross this red line and turn the Ukraine and maybe even bring the Ukraine into NATO. So when that happened, Russia started supporting an insurgency in Ukraine's east. And I mean, basically, Russia involved eastern Ukraine. You can call it little green men. You can call it supporting an insurgency. Or you can call it Russian soldiers. It's probably a mix of all three. And Russia annexed Crimea. And now there's this low-level, ongoing conflict in eastern Ukraine. In response to this, in 2015, the U.S. began providing non-lethal aid to Ukraine. And there's debate about whether or not the U.S. should also provide lethal support in addition to this non-lethal aid. And those who favored lethal support argued that Russia needed to face Meaningful consequences to its annexation of Crimea, whereas those who oppose lethal aid said, "No, no, that just risks uh, that that just increases the risks of U.S. weapons killing Russian servicemen or Russian proxies that are fighting in Russia's interest, and you know escalating this conflict with Russia, and we don't really want to get into a conflict with Russia." Now, before that non-lethal aid got approved, Congress actually passed a bill called uh, the Ukraine Freedom Support Act, which is a very, very American-sounding name. Yeah, it's so American. You support freedom. freedom. Yeah, that's what we do. And Congress actually passed this in 2014, and the idea was to appropriate about $350 million in security assistance to the Ukraine, which would have included lethal aid in the form of anti-tank and anti-armor weapons. However, after Congress said, yeah, let's give them lethal aid, President Obama actually decided not to authorize the sale of U.S. arms or provide financing to Ukraine in order to purchase any weapons. So throughout the course of the entire Obama... Perhaps he was the the puppet of Putin the whole time. So while the Obama administration did not provide any lethal support, that has changed under the Trump administration. And it started in December 2017 with a relatively small package, $40 million or or so, to buy a bunch of sniper rifle systems, ammunition, and related parts. But the first sort of real major lethal aid package from the U.S. to Ukraine came in early 2018. In terms of dollar amounts, it wasn't that much bigger, a little closer to $50 million, but it did involve javelin anti-tank missiles. And um, some people argue that, oh, well, you know, that almost doesn't count because it's just defensive weapons instead of offensive weapons. But, you know, once weapons get to the front lines of a battle, one, you don't really have any control over them. And two, even if they were strictly defense weapons, having all of those weapons that you can hold in the rear lets Ukraine deploy all of their offensive weapons that were being used for defense to the front. So the point is, it is letting Ukraine kill Russian uh, servicemen or Russian allies easier. And it, it didn't stop with this package in 2018. In February 2019, the Trump administration notified Congress that funds that had already been appropriated and provided for one of the Department of Defense's programs of support to Ukraine need to start going towards lethal aid. So it took funds that already existed and redirected it towards lethal aid. And then in 2019, sort of a larger initiative, but also happened under the ages of the Trump administration, the federal budget increased funding to Ukraine by $50 million to a total of $250 million. And the budget actually required that of this $250 million, $50 million had to go towards lethal aid. So under the Trump administration, the U.S. has begun and continues to increase providing lethal aid to the Ukraine, which is a new development. In other words, and in summary, the U.S. is actively providing weapons to a country that is either killing Russian servicemen or Russian proxies. And while it's not – I don't think you can call it a full-scale proxy war right now, especially because the front's kind of frozen in eastern Ukraine – it also wouldn't be an exaggeration to call what's going on in eastern Ukraine a low level proxy conflict between the US and Russia. So, if low level proxy conflict with Russia in one of Russia's critical geostrategic regions counts as the US going too soft on Russia, then we need to ask ourselves what would be sufficiently tough? And this is what I meant when I said earlier that we need to ask ourselves about how we define soft. And hard because it's really easy to just pit ourselves into, into two groups and argue that one person is or isn't doing enough without actually having a clear understanding of what our objective should be. So it's not a pedantic question. And I think a lot of folks who would claim that Trump is compromised and is going too soft on Russia and is just acting as a Putin's puppet would also actively oppose the idea of the US becoming more embroiled in another foreign war, especially one that risks confrontation with a nuclear power. But if you take this trump russia Mueller, corruption narrative and kind of filter it through what's actually happened in terms of the Trump administration's support of the Ukraine, that's the kind of conclusion that you get. So when we talk about narrative isolation, that's kind of the risk, is if you only look at one narrative that gets echoed over and over without considering what's actually happening— the conclusions that you're implying might not actually be what you want.
1: Yeah. And I think what's interesting about this is that if we, if we had had this, you know, if Xander presented all of this information about a different president, about George Bush or about Barack Obama, people would sit there and I'm, you know, I'm sure we'd find reasons, you know, to say that, that each of these presidents is terrible. For some reason, right, with respect to their foreign policy with Russia, like uh, it's, it's somehow bad. We'll, we'll find a way to make it bad. But what we'd be talking about is, you know, whether their policies make sense or not or whether they're in our interest. And I, I happen to think that if you're asking the question, is this the kind of behavior that someone who essentially works for Putin would be? you know, would be conducting, I think you need to, we need to like take a second to take Trump's name out of it and say, all right, you know, one of these other presidents, if they were doing this, what would I think? Would this seem kind of normal? Would it seem excessively pro, or would it seem unusually pro-Russia? And, uh, you know, uh, we'll leave the analysis to you on this question. But if, and if this has changed your perspective, If a lot of this information is new, if you haven't heard a lot of this information before in the narrative about Trump's, you know, relationship with Russia and especially, you know, Putin, what does it mean about some of the reliability or the motivations or the biases or intentions of a lot of the media that you've been listening to or reading that has been, you know, talking about this narrative and repeating it? So um, I think this is the reason I loved this example, this case study so much. And the reason I encourage Andrew so much to share it was that I think it's a I think I think it is potentially very, you know, very disruptive to what is a very common narrative and therefore is a really great opportunity to reconsider. Now, of course, those those who have been rejecting that narrative the entire time whether they're Trump supporters or not but who have been rejecting the compromised narrative the entire time i think it's also a good opportunity if if you're not aware of any of this information or much of it what has been you know what has been the stuff that that what has been the information that you've been looking at what has been the evidence that you've been looking at that has led you to conclude you know that that trump's you know foreign policy vis-a-vis russia has been you know in american interests versus not and to what extent have you formed – had you, had you formed your narrative on evidence versus to what extent had you formed a narrative that made sense for your tribe or your team and then, you know, happened to either sought out evidence to support it or, or didn't happen to get it today. So good opportunities for all of us.
2: Yeah, and I had – I had a colleague at GPF who recently went to a conference overseas and came back with an interesting observation and he basically said, you know, the rest of the world is desperately waiting for the US to say what's important to it and what interests it's going to actually pursue, what vision it has for the future and what it wants of its allies and it just doesn't really have a good idea. And what I what I think is instructive about this this particular narrative, the Trump, Russia, Mueller corruption narrative is it is it is a great example of sort of how we get caught bickering at home about whether or not we like or dislike a particular politician with and while kind of missing a bigger topic. And the big the bigger issue here is, you know, what outcome do we want in Ukraine? And what resources are we willing to use to pursue that outcome? That's something that is discussed never in the Mueller narratives and pretty rarely, even in discussions on the Ukrainian civil war the conflict, if you want to call it that, in the East. It's just not something that gets talked about a whole lot. It's, it's whether or not we're doing too much or not enough with Russia. It's this bipolar narrative, which, Eric, you've written about in your book, Wedge, how so many issues get lumped into these two camps. And that, one, ignores all the different varieties of opinions that actually exist out there. But, two, and a slightly different point that I'm making here is it is it distracts us from asking bigger questions about what America actually wants to see in the world and this this lack of understanding about what we want to see in Ukraine or what we think the Pacific should look like really isn't just a matter of one administration either being inept or or capable or whatever but it is a symptom of this wedging rhetoric and how you know pitting one group against another, and that method of political discourse has really kind of ruined our ability to think critically about what the u s wants and needs in the world so that was that was my talk from intelligence speech in New York, and it was damn
1: good, and you know we have to have the disclaimer that. Xander's case study here, his analysis of this this one narrative and the evidence that either supports or does not support it has you know no bearing on any other narrative with respect to this. So it doesn't confirm or not confirm, you know, any of the conclusions of the Mueller report or or Trump's behavior with respect to the investigations. We have, you know, no official stance right now on. You know, we're staying out of the question of, you know, should Trump continue to be investigated for, you know, the stuff that Congress is probing him about, all that, all that good stuff. We're just leaving B for now. We just wanted to answer or we want to explore the evidence with respect to one common narrative, one question, and then let you guys run with it. So uh, we hope that you have enjoyed. Xander, thank you for uh, humoring me and keep sending us your questions. Sometimes we. Don't answer them directly. I know we've sort of gotten stuff around this one a lot. It all inspires us when we sit down and crack open a beer and talk about what we want to talk about next. So, you know, you guys are what we, you know, the the show, the show is about helping you and, uh, you know, we enjoy it too. We have fun, but the show is about helping you and, and the places where, you know, you want a little help reconsidering are the favorite places that we want to put work into. So Send us your questions, reconsider pod on Twitter and Facebook. Email me or Xander, uh, Eric with a K at reconsidermedia.com, Xander X. with an X at reconsidermedia.com. Fill out the form on the website, reconsidermedia.com. All that good stuff. A lot of ways to find us. And until we hear from you next or maybe see you in London, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. Thank you again,
2: Xander. No problem. Xander signing off. See you next time, guys.